Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. After years of searching, El Chapo was in their sights at last. He stayed holed up in his safe house where he spent 90% of his time there in Culiacan. And it's the last place you want to have to go again. Right. We thought it would be an absolute bloodbath. But we had to make a move. And that move was to go into enemy territory and, and root them out. Well, that from the Dateline NBC special Saturday or Sunday night, rather, uh, exploring uh, the remarkable tale uh, of the hunt for El Chapo. That was DEA agent Andrew Hogan who led this hunt. El Chapo slang for shorty in Mexico. Joaquin Guzman Lorera, described by the U.S. government as the most ruthless, dangerous and feared man on the planet. The head of the Sinaloa drug cartel. And a man who became almost a legend in Mexico and beyond. Not just because of his, his reach and his power, but just his, his ability to escape capture. He seemed invulnerable. Captured in 1993. Escaped. Remained at large for years and years. Finally captured again in 2014. Escaped yet again. Before being captured in January 2016. His trial in the United States, by the way, coming up later this year. Uh, So Andrew Hogan telling his story in the book Hunting El Chapo, the inside story of the American lawman who captured the world's most wanted drug lord, a book he wrote with best-selling author Douglas Century, who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Doug, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate being on. Well, congrats on the book. I'm doing really well. So obviously a lot of interest uh, in in this story. Um, And in fact, I understand a, a movie's in the works too, isn't it? Yes. Uh, they right away when we sold the book, it was already sold to Sony, uh, optioned by Sony, with a big name director named Michael Bay. Makes all the, you know, big budget films. Uh, I don't know if he'll produce, but you just heard the the Dateline thing. The way they did that documentary, it sounds like a movie, doesn't it? It's yeah, just it really does. So much action. It's a bit of uh, Black Hawk Down. There's, there's helicopters. There's all kinds of stuff, including, you know, Marines busting down doors. But it's it's really a a high-tech caper there's there's so many ways you could do it but anyway i know there's a lot of breaking news in canada so i appreciate you taking the time to to have me on well and it's an important story and i think for canadians and we'll get into it but i think for canadians who read this book they're going to be surprised at the amount of canadian connections to this story but let's take kind of a big picture view of this what, what do people need to know about el chapo he's the most powerful drug kingpin in history a lot of people think of, uh, you know, Pablo Escobar. They ask me that question all the time. Pablo Escobar was a narco-terrorist. He blew up airplanes. I mean, you're, you probably remember this. Yep. He blew up the houses of government. He kidnapped journalists. And his reign was relatively short. He was killed when he was 44 years old. Chapo, as you just said, was... I mean, had he not made some really stupid mistakes due to his obsession with women and other little uh, Achilles heels, he'd still be at large. He would have lived out his lives in this impenetrable region in the Sierra Madre Mountains in Sinaloa. Um, and he, I mean, he invented things that are still, you know, Donald Trump talks about building a wall. There's at least 200 narco tunnels right now. And there's one man that invented the narco tunnel, that's Chapo. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's the ultimate, he's the, the, the peak of what, I'm saying this in a complimentary way, but I don't mean it to be complimentary. He's the peak of what a drug dealer could be. He's yeah. the biggest, most, I mean, five 
times on the Forbes billionaire list for a guy who dropped out, I mean, left school when he was about eight and is completely illiterate. Even in Spanish, he's illiterate. So the mythology of him, I guess I could explain this really quickly. He's a bit of a mix between Robin Hood and Al Capone. Uh, he's popular with a lot of people in Mexico because at eight years old, he was selling oranges on the street in his his little town called La Tuna because they didn't have food to eat. And so to go from impoverished kid, no no education, to being a billionaire, a Forbes billionaire, I mean, the U.S. government asked for forfeitures in the trial that you mentioned of $14 billion. That's an extremely enticing and captivating mythology in a country filled with poor people. Uh, you know, to go from the little boy who can't, can't put food on the table selling oranges to being a billionaire. So, but... Unlike Escobar, I, uh, Chapo's first line of, of operation was always bribery. I mean, he bribed everybody, and he would lay out huge amounts of money. Government, military, corrupted everybody, because he knew that blood was kind of a stupid way to go. He, he, would ra- he killed a lot of people. Let's not sugarcoat that. Right. Ten, tens of thousands. I mean, they, they estimate tens of thousands. There's a line in the book. I don't want to give away too many great lines, but <laughs> they're, they're, they're interrogating him after the capture. And they said, okay, so now we can close out the 10,000 homicides that we have on you. And he said, senor, senor, 10,000, it's more like 3,000. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's killed a lot of people. But uh, So I would say what you need to know is that this is a, a legendary sort of Robin Hood figure, but he was also like Harry Houdini. You mentioned it. He could escape. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Canadians remember this. It was just a couple years ago. A 1.5-kilometer tunnel under the most high security prison in all of Mexico, Altiplano. And he drilled right up into his, with such precision, because he has actual engineers and architects from Europe. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's employed the best. So he's taken the art, if they if want to use that as a kind of backhanded compliment, the, the art of being a narco trafficker to the highest level. And the guy I was lucky enough to partner with on this book, Drew Hogan, um, you know, unfortunately for Chapel, he met his match. He met the one guy that could, could outthink him. Yeah. And Drew spent at least, I mean, four years we cover in the book, but probably eight. Just, I don't like the word obsession. He just fixated on the details of how Chapel ran his op- operation. Very, very smart. Blackberries that were mirrored all over the place, and it was almost impossible to crack them. But Drew did. And, you know, I won't tell you how he did it because you got to read the book, but... Well, he's one hell of a cop, and we were out drinking last night, by the way. So, <laughs> I saw some he, pictures he, of him. He's a, he's a street cop, by the way. Like people get this idea of feds. I don't know if it works that way. With uh, I'm I'm Calgarian, obviously, but in the U.S., uh, you know, it would be as if a Calgary cop versus an RCMP. The, the feds are seen as being, you know, college educated versus like street cops. Yeah. But Drew was a a deputy sheriff uh, on a highway in the Midwest with one of those like Staten caps. Uh, you know, just looking like the the classic local cop. Well, he looks so young, dude. He's got like a almost like a baby face, though. Right? Yeah, oh, he's, a, he's a kid, man. I was hanging out with his buddies last night, and I was like, and they were all getting carded for. I mean, I'm an old man, man. <laughs> like, every every bar we tried to go to, they were getting asked for ID. I said, your, your friends are what, 22? Uh, he's mid 30s, and he left. You know, people ask, what's this? What's so special about this book? I've done books with, yeah, you know my my resume a bit, uh, ATF agents uh, did this book called Under and Alone about a bike, uh, infiltration of a biker gang um, by a guy named Billy Queen. But usually uh, guys wait 20 years 
because that's when their pension kicks in. Mm-hmm. So imagine, here's Drew, goes to Mexico City, takes the Sinaloa desk, which is the most dangerous thing, starts tracking this guy down, gets the Marines involved. They, they catch him. And then he's got to go back to work at the office in the U.S. Embassy, and he's like, what am I going to do, like go after some lesser drug dealer and start pinging his blackberries? So he basically said, that's it. I mean, there's nobody higher. And it was never about Chapo. He always says this. It was never about Chapo. It was about the challenge, the fact that everybody said he was uncatchable. So Drew's one of those guys, I don't know if you want to call it, you know, alpha male type A, whatever, but if you, if you, if you tell him you can't do something, he'll, <laughs> he'll get it done. Yeah, that's how we basically that's how we got this book done by the way too we wrote it in about in an incredibly tight time time frame because of the news value we're in conversation with author doug century talking about the book hunting el chapo the story of dea agent drew hogan and the takedown of el chapo the world's most wanted drug lord uh and doug let me just uh, i want to read this uh, one one line here for folks it says at one point millions of dollars were sitting uncollected in vancouver calgary winnipeg toronto and montreal on the previous page, uh, Drew says, we knew about Chapo's vast distribution network throughout the United States, but we were caught off guard by his deep infiltration of Canada. I think this is going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah, it is. I mean, if you saw Dateline, a buddy of mine in Vancouver who's listening now said, did you see all those bundles of Canadian cash? There were a lot, a lot of money pickups. Uh, there's a lot of Canada in the book, and I made sure. I'm from Calgary. I made sure we got Calgary in the index. I, I hate it. Yeah, and there it is. <laughs> Mention the Calgary connection, but it's really Vancouver. Um, another so there's a, another window into how smart this guy is for a guy who's illiterate. He gets his kilos of cocaine for say two thousand dollars in Ecuador. So streets of Los Angeles, he could move them for twenty five thousand. You know the price fluctuates. But then he sees Vancouver thirty five thousand. Okay, he'd rather he's already got them in the U S. So it's just a question of getting them up to Washington State. They fly them on airplanes. There's mul- multiple ways you can do it. But with all that. Most of us have been out to beautiful British Columbia. With all that forest, you drop the cocaine, there's GPS, nobody has to collect it. And it's obviously not Mexican guys. Generally, there's one guy running point, basically, for Vancouver. But he he then, you know, the lower level, it goes down to the Hells Angels and and other uh, ethnic uh, gangs across Canada. But every bit of cocaine that's being snorted in, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary is coming straight up from his pipeline. And, uh, yeah, he had a kid in Vancouver. The guy's probably still out there, so I don't want to say too much. And um, Chapo was getting really mad because all this – the guy was part- – he was a kid, and he was, mm-hmm. like, partying and flashing, like, Chapo stuff on Facebook. I mean, this is not how you run your, <laughs> your operation. Right. And there was – hundreds and hundreds of thousands, I think, in Calgary. They're just sitting there uncollected, you know. So Chapo gets, you know, I don't want to give away the book, but, again, there's a point where he says, look, I want to report every night, every night. And, I mean, the numbers just blew me away because it was like, you probably read it, Vancouver, $560,000, Winnipeg, $275,000, Toronto, $2 million. That's nightly. So think about that. I mean, so he's, he's, what he's done is, as a business guy, that's that's exploitation of new markets. He also saw kind of weakness in maybe the way, like you know, the RCMP has to cover everything, right? The states down here they have so many feds, yeah. and DEA just focuses on drugs. We don't really have that in Canada. So Trapo saw that as a weakness, and he exploited it. He said, "Look, they don't have a dedicated drug enforcement uh, administration the way the U.S. does." He also used blackberries. This is just a funny little aside. He 
all the people at Blackberries. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of guys, and every month they would drop all their phones, meaning like burn them, and get new Blackberries. And I kept asking, why did they use Blackberries? Because he knew they were out of Waterloo, <laughs> Ontario. Yeah. He thought that because it was a Canadian company, it would be harder for the U.S. to write warrants. Because every one of the conversations that you see in the book, that's a legally obtained w- wiretap. And you see the real texts. You'll see what they were actually saying to each other. It's crazy. He actually thought he, was, he had a layer of security against U.S. prosecution by using ca- Canadian stuff. So there's an no- enormous amount of Canadian content in the book. Um, you know, sad to say, we're his—we're the people that made him billionaires, Canadians and Americans. I mean, you know, it's our appetite. It's the party, the party lifestyle in every city. Um, I'll tell you a real sm- uh, small meta moment. I like to write on a laptop and then print it out. So there's a really nice pub. I won't name them. I grew up in Southwest Calgary. So I'm taking my pages in there just to have a pint of beer, and I was literally reading the pages we just written about about, you know, the cocaine trading in Canada, in Calgary. And a guy in the bar says, hey, you need some blow? I was like, look, man, (laughs) I don't. And uh, that was just a bizarre, you know, feeling. It's like I'm writing about how he distributes cocaine. And there it's, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are saying cocaine in Calgary. Well, I mean, you read about it. There were a bunch of knucklehead 24, 25-year-olds, I think, just in the news, right, in March. They were going down to uh, Utah and... I think they were swapping uh, weed for meth because the the cartel also controls methamphetamine and they do every kind of drug. But anyway, uh, yeah, a lot of Canadian stuff and, you know, the Canadian appetite for cocaine and the Canadian dollar was very, very, very appealing to Mr. Guzman, Senor Guzman. That's right. So, and I mean, like in, in Colombia, when the, the Medellin cartel went down, the Cali cartel just filled that void. So with, um, you know, El Chapo being taken down, has, has that void been filled? Yeah, already, well, what happened, you'll see in the book, if you, well, you know, your readers, I hope, people, if you want to hear the whole story, you got to, don't wait for the Michael Bay movie. All his main guys, his killers, they call them sicarios, the main killers. There's a guy in the book named Picudo. There was a guy named Bravo who was supposed to protect Chapo when he escaped many times. He escapes, right? So he escapes through this bathtub tunnel. They're all on hydraulics. They're just crazy James Bond kind of things, right? And Bravo didn't protect him, so he's dead. Uh, All his main killers are either locked up or dead. He doesn't have many. And there's a guy right now called El Mencho, Mencho who's out of Guadalajara, who's the up-and-coming guy and killing everybody. And Chapo just doesn't have the muscle anymore on the street. So, yeah, the void is going to be filled. The, there's plenty of cocaine. being. The leaves are being grown in Peru and Bolivia. It's being processed down there in places like Colombia and Ecuador. And the Mexicans are going to run it forever because of the border with the U.S. It's huge. It's a massive border. So, I mean, it's not going anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, it's like a Pez dispenser. Cops always tell me that about the mafia. And it's the truth. You knock off the top Pez. <laughs> right. So the next guy you're going to be hearing about is called Mencho, and he's about 45. Uh, he's the up-and-comer. By the way, just a, a note, nobody calls him El Chapo. That's like saying the shorty. So it's funny when you hang out with the guys who really lived it, they just call him Chapo. Chapo. Because um, it's almost like a media thing, El Chapo and so El Mencho. Um 
he's really just a short guy. Well, and that's what's so funny about it, Jimena. It's similar to to Pablo because you know these are some of the most feared people in the world. And but if you ran into them in a back alley, you had no idea who they were. You you wouldn't be scared of them. They they don't yeah. look like frightening people, uh, but they are. They really are. Yeah. Well, Chapo. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So you see pictures in the book. He loved his AR-15. And there's an amazing moment in the book. Um, there's a lot of Mexican slang. Believe it or not, a Calgary Jewish Jewish guy from Calgary I had to pick up a lot of like the Mexican lingo and and learn some Spanish pretty well. They say cueta, which is a rocket. So in the BlackBerry messages, he says, "Dame mi cueta. I, I need my my rocket." And there was a particular Colt 38, which they called a super, a Colt super. His is monogrammed and jeweled. You'll see it on the back of the book. And Drew Drew has his gun. It's almost like a, a classic Western, right? He goes down there. He goes in. I mean, people keep asking him this question, and I thought it was hilarious. I called that chapter The Man in the Black Hat. Chapo's look was very low-key. He would always wear a black trucker hat, baseball hat with no logo. But he had, like, a bunch of them. So they're raiding his safe house in Culiacan, which is the main gangster city. It's the narco capital. And Drew says, ah, I'll take one souvenir. He wears this black hat for the rest of the hunt. And when he confronts him face-to-face, Chapo looks at him. Who's this gringo, this tall, blonde, freaking guy with my hat on? (laughs) And he kept wanting his gun. But there's a moment where, you know, Drew gets his gun. And he's like, I said, wow, you were holding his gun? He said, yeah. And his Blackberry messages kept saying... Give me my, dame me, me super. I need my super. I think there's almost something like uh, superstitious because it's monogrammed with his name. But yeah, these guys are. Uh, you wouldn't want to mess with them. Uh, you or I would not want to mess with them. But trust me, the Hell's Angels who are distributing across Canada that are feared by most people don't want to mess with them. Nobody wants to mess with those guys. The cartels are about as ruthless. I think Escobar was stupid in that sense in Colombia, that he just blew up people indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Chapo killed you, it would be for a reason. And there's some really interesting stuff I left out of the book, but it's just too much information. I would say, so, you know, if you if you screwed him over, he'd kill you. And Drew said, no, you know, we had incidents where, like, a huge amount of cocaine would go missing, tons. And he'd call the guy in for a meeting, I'm blindfolded, they'd drive him in circles, he'd come to the house, and it would almost be like a trial. And if the, and if the guy could explain it, he'd live. You know, Chapo didn't kill you all the time. However, he did kill you if <laughs> you yeah. screwed up bad enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the nicknames, though, Shorty, it, it's a kind of it's a Mexican thing. Um, I, I, I love soccer, and there's a, there's a big team called Chivas, and there was a guy, he's just a short player. So the, I was watching TV, and they said, goal, goal to Chapo, and I was laughing. Chapo's just a nickname in Mexico for short. And you think about it, I don't think anybody calls him to his face Chapo. It's... Um, in the book, you'll see there's lots of there's lots of honorifics. Padrino, which is like Godfather, or usually they would call him Inge, which is short for engineer. Ingenierio, because he really is the engineer. He's the guy that puts the, these concrete tunnels. I mean, they are feats of engineering. They're almost perfect tunnels with with rails and. I mean, oh, it's, it's yeah, quite and there's, there's yeah, there's some pretty amazing pictures in the book too of all of that. Yeah. Uh, Doug, we got to leave it there. It's such a great story. Hunting El Chapo is the book. Thanks so much for joining us here today. It's been great. Rob, I appreciate you having me on as always. Okay. All right, all the best. Take care. Uh, that is Douglas Century, as he mentions, from right here in Calgary. Uh, wrote this book with Andrew Hogan, the DEA agent uh, who led this hunt for El Chapo. You know, moved his family to Mexico City, uh, of all places, to take up this hunt. It is quite something. And the extent to which El Chapo was able to try to shield himself, all the tunnels, all the safe houses, 
It's pretty crazy. Just got a text here. It says, Rob, I was in Sinaloa two weeks ago. The legend of Chapo Guzman is alive and well, even though he's behind bars. even sings songs about him. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.